how much time a day do you spend looking at some type of digital device, such as your phone, an iPad, computer, or a TV? How much time a day do you spend looking at some type of digital device? You know, it's funny. When I ask questions, you're typically quick to answer, but not that one. Okay. Let me ask another question. How much time do you think you will spend looking at those devices over the course of your entire life? A recent study conducted by Vision Direct sought to find the answer to that, that question. You know what they discovered? What do you think the answer is? Guess how much time the average American will spend looking at a digital device over the course of life. What do you think the answer is? 15 years. 15 years? Who, who said two hours? Maybe two hours in the morning, right? Anyone else? Four months? 30 years? What did you say? 30 years? Anyone else? You know what the answer is? <laughs> 44 years is the answer. Get this, and this study was conducted pre-COVID, which means the number has only increased. 44 years, the average American will spend 44 years of their life looking at a screen. In the study, researchers stated that few people give their eyes a real break from screen time. In fact, their study reports that it takes less than 10 minutes for the average American to go from waking up to looking at a screen in the morning. So how much time do you spend looking at a screen? Are you on track to spend 44 years of your life looking at a digital device? Here's, here's perhaps a better question. What are you looking at every day, be it on your phone or computer? Better still, what are you contemplating? What are you giving your attention to each and every day? Several weeks ago, we began a new series through the New Testament book of Ephesians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the saints at the church in Ephesus. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, Paul wrote Ephesians while in prison in Rome around AD 61-62. And as we're going to work our way through this book, we'll see he actually mentions his imprisonment three times. And something that just can't be overemphasized enough, we've stated this every week, Ephesians contains many glorious 
and very significant themes. However, there is one central message to this book that unites them all, and we've been arguing, and that is this. And the central message is God's glory displayed through the church. This, I want to argue, is the central message of this entire book. God has chosen a particular place where He wants His glory revealed and made known. He states it clearly at the end of chapter 3. It's in Jesus Christ and the church, the local church. When last week we studied chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, do you remember what Paul's main point was in that set of compact verses? It was actually an exhortation, and that was simply to praise the Father for His grace in Christ. Paul calls us to praise God the Father for the grace He has shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he went on to articulate that in Christ you've been blessed spiritually, you've been chosen to be holy and blameless in His sight. And in Christ you've been predestined for adoption. In that set of verses we, we talked about, God the Father is shouting His love to His children. He's shouting loudly for all to hear how much He loves you, Christian. Well, in our text this morning, I want to suggest that Paul's going to invite us to look at something. And as we're about to see, this is something we should look at and ponder for far more than 44 years of our life. And what is it we're called to give attention to? What is it Paul wants us to look at and examine? If you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. That's page 976 in that paperback Bible. And this morning, we're going to restrict our study to verses 7 through 10. But in order to get the, the flow of Paul's argument and his encouragement, I'm going to start back up in verse 3. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 10. And Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what are some of these spiritual blessings? even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to to the purpose of His will. That, that phrase is going to be important in our section we're going to study this morning. The following verses. Verse 6, To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. This is, this is why we drew out the, the main point of those verses, 3 through 6, is an exhortation to praise the Father 
for His grace in Christ. That's exactly what Paul calls us to do there in verse 6. And now verses 7 through 10, where we're going to camp out this morning. In Him, referring to Jesus Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery, there it is again, of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And what's this plan? How is it going to culminate? To unite all things in Him, referring to Jesus, things in heaven, and things on earth. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Uh, The World Bank is an international organization that provides loans to developing company or companies, developing countries. And they consider informing the public about financial matters a part of their mission. So every year the World Bank publishes hundreds, hundreds of well-researched reports. On average, these reports cost $180,000 in terms of the researchers' time and expenses. In total, the World Bank has generated over 1,600 of these reports, costing them to create these reports over $93 million. Recently, the World Bank conducted a study to discern the usefulness of these reports. You know what they found? Almost no one is reading their reports. <laughs> Indeed, they learned, get this, that nearly one-third of their policy reports have never been downloaded, not even once. Notice how often Paul uses terms related to wealth in the passage I just read. And then he even goes on talking about it more in verses 11 through 14. In many ways, Paul has published for us a financial report concerning the richest Christian you have in Christ. And unlike the World Bank reports, Paul wants you not only to read this one, but to delight in it. Indeed, we could summarize Paul's argument in these verses, 7 through 10, in this way. And again, it's an exhortation, and that is to praise God for His glorious work in Christ. Previously, it was for His grace in Christ, but now as we work our way down, Paul shifts his focus and attention specifically on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glorious work it is. As several commentators have pointed out, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, it's actually, it's one really, really long sentence in the original Greek. And as I mentioned, you'll recall how in verses 3 through 6, 
Paul calls us to praise the Father for His grace in Christ. Well, as we continue to work our way through this long sentence, Paul shifts his focus a little bit. And he calls us to not only simply praise God for His grace, but also for His glory. That is, His glory revealed in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, look down at verse 12. We're going to skip ahead for a moment. Look at what he says there in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, that's you and me, might be to the praise of His glory. His glory is to be the object of our praise. Now, it is no small thing that Paul employs wealth language in these verses. You know why? Because when Paul wrote this letter, Ephesus was considered the bank of Asia. Historians tell us that the temple of Artemis seemed not only to have been used as a religious site, but also as an institution similar to a bank. One of the great historians of that period described Ephesus as, quote, Asia's great center of trade and banking, and the temple as the general bank of Asia. Temple of Artemis, which is there located in Ephesus. So consider, consider what Paul is saying here. He's saying to the Ephesians, he says, the wealth you see in the temple of Artemis, that great wealth, you, the bank of Asia, the wealth you see there, that wealth pales in comparison to the riches and wealth you have, Christian, in Christ. And he's beckoning us. He's inviting us. Focus your gaze on the Lord. Stare and contemplate what God has done for you and the wealth you have in His Son. Indeed, I want to suggest that Paul gives reasons why we ought to praise God. Three reasons in particular why we ought to praise God for His glorious work in Christ. And the first is this. Praise God for His glorious work in Christ because number one, in Christ, God redeems you. Look how he starts here in verses 7 and 8. He says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He stingily metered out. Is that what it says? That He just carefully gave one attempt. No, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The story is told that there once lived a young boy in a city on a shore of a great lake who loved the water and who loved sailing. So deep was his fascination that he, with the help of his dad, they spent months working and building and constructing a model sailboat, which he began to sail at the water's edge. Well, one day a sudden gust of wind caught the little boat and it carried out far out into the lake, out of sight. Distraught, 
the boy returned home inconsolable. And day after day, he would walk the shores in search of his treasure, but always in vain. Well, then one day, as he was walking through the town, he saw his beautiful sailboat, but it was in a store window. So he approached the proprietor, and he announced his ownership, only to be told that the boat was not his, for the owner had paid a local fisherman good money for the boat. And if the boy wanted the boat, he would have to pay the price. So this young lad set himself to doing work in any in which way he could until he finally returned to the store with all the money. At last, holding his precious boat in his arms, he said with great joy to the boat, You are twice mine now because I made you and because I bought you. Christian, so it is with us and Christ. Please hear me, Christian. You are God's twice. Once by creation, and the second, as this takes me clear, second, by redemption. You belong to God the Father through Christ. As many of you know, redemption is payment of a price or a ransom. And notice how that redemption was accomplished. What did it cost God, Christian, to redeem you? What does the text says? You've been redeemed through what? Through what? The blood of His Son. Christian, your redemption was paid by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did I ever tell you that I used to wait tables as a server? Okay, I have? Okay. During my tenure as a server, I was privileged to both meet and wait on several celebrities. And they, they varied in range. Most of them were B, C, D level celebrities. Okay. But I, I Muhammad Ali, Brent Musburger, Nick Lachey, I all waited on. Right, exactly. I wanted the same thing. In fact, once I was the envy of all the hostesses when I waited on one of the Backstreet Boys. I also waited on Mr. Baseball himself, Donnie Baseball, Don Mattingly, who, by the way, really good tipper. <laughs> and as a server, whenever you have someone famous at one of your tables, you quickly become the envy of the entire wait staff. Oh, you see who he has at this table? See who he has at this table? However, though, I'm going to give you a little insider secret here. A little restaurant insider secret. Having a celebrity sit at your table is nothing compared to have somebody at your table pay with one of these. A black Centurion American Express card. And here's why. This card is a highly exclusive card. In order to obtain a Black American Express card, you must spend at least $250,000 a year on the card. Furthermore, you don't apply for one. You're personally invited by American Express to get one of these. A person with a Black American Express card has been personally invited to go to a special 
resort destination in order to receive their card. And as the recipient, they have no spending limit. And I have had the distinct privilege of waiting on only two people my entire server career, having them pay with a black American Express card. Because, you know, sometimes when you're waiting on a table, uh, someone gives me a normal credit card and I go and I swipe the card and it's declined. And that can be a very awkward conversation when you have to go back to the table, say, sorry, sir, sorry, ma'am, your card is declined, especially if that person is wanting to pay for everyone at the table. Okay? However, when someone paid with this card, there was no possibility for that card to be declined. Indeed, if someone had that card, they, they could buy the whole restaurant if they wanted. <laughs> what I'm saying is this. A purchase with a black American Express card is a secure purchase. In our society, there's perhaps no higher level of payment than this. Christian, in a far greater way, Paul is saying that we have been purchased with the greatest and most secure form of payment in our solar system, and that's the blood of Christ. This is what Paul is getting at when he talks that we have been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. He's saying there is no higher level of payment. There could be no more secure payment than that of Jesus' blood. And I got good news for you. God the Father doesn't have buyer's remorse. Take heart, Christian. He purchased you with the blood of His Son in love. And He doesn't regret it. Christ's blood is like this card. It will never be declined. And you know what this means? It means a lot of things. But primarily it means, friend, that your life, Christian, is not your own. Why? Because you've been bought with a price. Christian, please hear me. You belong to God. He owns you. Indeed, like that boat, you belong to Him twice. And on the street level, this means you have a new purpose. Your agenda now, Christian, in each and every situation for everyday life is to think, how can I live for Christ, not myself? No longer is your agenda to be getting what I want, when I want, but rather, how can I honor and obey Christ in this situation? How can I honor and obey Christ when I'm in a conflict with my spouse? How can I honor and obey Christ when I'm dealing with a disobedient child? How can I honor and disobey Christ when I have a difficult coworker? How can I honor and disobey Christ when my spouse isn't meeting my needs? How can I honor and obey Christ? In every situation. Can I ask... Does your life reflect that you belong to God? By the way, if I said honor and disobey Christ, I misspoke. Did I say that? I did? Okay. 
please forgive me. I don't want you to disobey Christ. I was speaking so fast. I want you to honor and obey Christ. But I just don't want you to do that. God wants you to do that. But ask, does your life reflect that you belong to God? Would those closest to you know that you are owned by God? That is, by your actions and choices, is it evidence that God is in possession of you? And to ask, what is your agenda when in a conflict with your spouse? What is your agenda when you experience any difficulty at your work? Is your agenda to please Jesus? Beloved, it ought to be. You know why? Because you've been purchased with the most valuable currency in the universe. Jesus. In Him we have redemption through His blood. But you know what? It gets better. <laughs> Look at the next phrase. What does it say? It says, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Notice again the wealth language. Okay, you, you don't have to say it out loud, but let me ask you, what is forgiveness? A few moments ago, I had all these precious children up here and we prayed for them. If one of the kids of our church came up to you and said, hey, can you tell me, what's forgiveness? What's the definition of forgiveness? What would you say? You know what I found? I found that sadly, many Christians don't know what it is. Or they have a hard time articulating it. And yet, as the redeemed, we talk about forgiveness all the time. So what is forgiveness? Well, very simply, forgiveness is a radical decision not to hold an offense against the offender. Forgiveness is a radical decision not to hold an offense against the offender. Friend, when someone sins against you, a debt is created. You suffer some kind of loss. When someone sins against you, a debt is created. You suffer some kind of loss. It could be loss of reputation, innocence, opportunity. You lose something. A real non-monetary debt is created. And when someone sins against you, you have two choices and only two choices. You can either take payment on that debt, making the other person pay, or you can make payments. That is, you absorb the debt yourself. You take payments on a debt from your offender's sins in many ways. You might withhold forgiveness or dwell on a wrong or be cold or give up on the relationship or secretly in your heart root that they have a bad life. You might even take payment on that debt by constantly reminding your offender of the terrible thing they've done. So one choice is you take payment. You make them pay. The other choice is to make payments on the other person's debt, releasing them from the penalties they deserve to pay. 
To forgive a person is to absorb the debt yourself. You pay for the loss. And friend, that is precisely what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen? We all have trespassed. We all have crossed over the boundaries God has set for us to obey. Yet on the cross, Christ paid the penalty for our trespasses. Christ absorbed the debt. He paid the penalty so we wouldn't have to. Not only that, in His forgiveness, God doesn't dwell on our sins, nor does He withhold affection to His own who He has forgiven. No, He forgives us completely in Christ. I love what John Calvin said, preaching on this very text at a sermon in Geneva In 1558, he proclaimed this. He says, God puts our sins out of his remembrance and drowns them in the depths of the sea. And moreover, he receives the payment that was offered him in the person of his only son. And again, notice the money language in these verses. God did all this according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And I take that last phrase, wisdom and insight, to mean that in His wisdom, God knew full well the depths of our sin and depravity. Yet He still chose to generously pour out His grace towards us. Let me ask, Christian, why wouldn't you want to look at this screen every day of your life? The screen of what God has done for you in Jesus. Why would you not want to give careful thought to these great truths? Because you know what would happen if you did? You'd sing. You'd worship Him. You'd praise God, which is precisely the point. Praise God for His glorious work in Christ. But then second, praise God for His glorious work in Christ because in Christ, God reveals His will. Look at verse 9. Back it up in verse 8. Which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which he set forth in Christ. Hmm. This entire time, I have had an object hidden under this towel. Did you notice that at all? Do you notice I've had this here the whole time? What do you think is underneath it? Guess. Say again? A piggy bank, okay. What? Fruit snacks, okay. Daniel's tarantula. Daniel's tarantula, yes. <laughs> wow, that would be a shock. And it could be. Anyone else? What do you think is underneath this? Huh? Are you ready to find out? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Ooh. Now, what is this? It's a cross. Not a very an original object to hide in a church, I know. <laughs> but it's a cross, okay? Previously, 
it was hidden. Now it's revealed for you to see. In Scripture, the term mystery, the very term Paul uses in verse 9, it's not referring to a riddle. No, in Scripture, it refers to the revelation of something that was previously hidden, but is now made fully known, just like I did with this cross. For the whole first part of the sermon and the service, it was concealed. But in this very moment, how blessed are you that I lifted it up for you to see. And notice, as verse 9 makes clear, the mystery that is being revealed is God's will. Notice what he says. Making known to us the mystery of his will. And what about God's will is being revealed? Was the immediate context verifies, particularly verse 5, it's God's saving work in Christ. This is what God is revealing, his saving work in Christ. It was concealed, barely visible, but now God's plan, his saving purposes have been revealed to you, Christian, in Christ. Let me ask the rather simple question. How did you learn that there was a cross underneath the towel? How? Because I chose to reveal it to you. I lifted it up for you to see. Likewise, Paul is saying the only reason why you've come to know Jesus as your Savior, the one who has forgiven you of your trespasses and sins by His blood, the one who has predestined you for adoption as sons, is because God chose to reveal it to you. Notice, it's according to His own purpose, not yours, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose. You didn't know this in your natural state. I didn't know it in my natural state. We are incapable of knowing this in our natural state. Yet in His kindness, God has chosen to reveal it to you, Christian. And again, what should this produce in the life of the believer? Praise. Praise to His glorious work in Christ. And then finally, we're to praise God for His glorious work in Christ because in Christ, God rules over all. Look at verse 10. So I'm going to just read it back in verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, making known to us the mystery of his will, that being Christ and his saving work, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And now he's moving to the future as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
in his inaugural lecture at Cambridge, with great pessimism and despair, Professor G.N. Clark said, quote, there is no secret and no plan in history to be discovered. I do not believe that any future consummation could make sense of the irrationalities of the preceding ages. Did you hear the hopelessness in that statement? He believes, as he looks about, there's no plan for history. Oh, but we the redeemed know otherwise, don't we? We know that history is going somewhere. And where is it going? As this verse makes clear, it's moving towards the moment when Christ, Jesus Christ, will both unite, get this, all things, as well as be head and ruler of all things. This is where history is moving Jesus of Nazareth, born 2,000 years ago, lived the perfect life we failed to, to live, died the death we deserved to die on the cross, was crucified, was raised from the dead. Jesus, the very Son of God. Everything is moving towards Him uniting all things and being the King and ruler of them all. And just for a moment, consider how incredible this statement is. This is one of the most Christ-exalting verses in all of the New Testament. Commentator Peter O'Brien captures it best. He says, Christ is the one in whom God chooses to sum up the cosmos. The one in whom he restores harmony to the universe. And then he says this, he is the focal point, not simply the means, the instrument, or the functionary through whom all this occurs. Christ is the focal point. Faith, everything in history is moving towards the complete and total worship of Jesus Christ, his King. He's the focal point of human history. He is the one who will be praised and honored for all eternity. He is the one whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you, Jesus, you are Lord of all. And we are called as God's people to praise and honor and obey this King now. Oh, let us do so with joyful hearts. Amen? Faith, let us be people who give more time to seeing and delighting in our Savior than screens. Let us be people who, as we're about to sing here a moment, Find interest in the Savior's blood. Interest in the marvelous work He has done to redeem us, to purchase us so that we could be His own. Amen? Let's pray.